And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 9. 42 through 49. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Father's Instruction. My name is Jason Tackett. Today we're going to be talking about the uncomfortable subject of hell. What does the Bible teach about it? And how do we defend what is clearly taught in the scriptures from Christianity's critics? I pray that this will be a blessing to you. There are seldom words that are found in the scriptures that are more uncomfortable for us to read than words like and in hell he opened his eyes there are four great contentions of fallen men when they approach the scriptures first they hate the idea of God for they do not want anyone to rule over them Secondly, they hate the idea of sin, for they desire to be righteous in their own eyes. Thirdly, they hate the idea of grace, which sounds odd. But if they were forced to admit that they are sinners before God, they prefer to believe that they, by their own works, earn favor with God. Lastly, though, they hate the idea of hell. They hate the idea that they must be judged. They hate the idea that their choices have eternal consequences. They hate the idea that they even deserve such a fate. That's unthinkable to them. And to the contemporary man, the idea of hell represents all that is wrong with traditional Christianity and Judaism. They say, as one writer has recently portrayed, that it is contrary to the idea that God is love. A God of love would not punish a person for all eternity in a lake of fire, they would say. It is declared that heaven could not be enjoyed 
with the knowledge of loved ones suffering in hell, and with subject and with subjections, if I can get my words out, people go about to deny the idea of hell with doctrinal teachings on a the theological level. They invent doctrines like annihilation to teach that hell is possibly non-existent and one ceases to exist at the point of physical death or they will only suffer temporarily before ceasing to exist. Some even go as far as teaching universalism, whereby they say that everybody will eventually escape hell and earn heaven through their own sufferings. In this sense, hell is only a temporary sort of purgatory, an idea that is foreign to the biblical writers, whereby people purchase their own salvation. In our generation, at least maybe about 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember exactly when, I remember a book by a man named Rob Bell. When he took up this very argument, he argued that many would suffer through hell before gaining heaven. They believe such doctrine removes the sting out of the idea of hell, but they only complicate the idea of justice and cheapen the idea of salvation. The nominal Christian world is not, though, the only ones that take issue with the idea of hell. The secular and unbelieving world has the same issues. The average person will believe in hell only for the most evil of mankind. Uh, if you say, well, who ends up in hell? They'll say, well, Hitler or Stalin or Manson or someone like that is going to end up in hell. But, but it's never for themselves and those close to them. They imagine to be pretty good people and believe that God will have to allow them into heaven because of how good they are. The intellectual person will dismiss hell altogether as an outmoded idea. They proclaim the idea of God, morality, the existence of the immaterial soul, free will, and justice have no actual reality. They hide behind a worldview of materialism, that only the material world exists and the laws of nature govern all that exists, and there's no room for hell in such a world, or heaven, or God, or morality, or anything else. They refuse to believe that there will be a life after this, as the writer of Hebrews says, after this, the judgment. They refuse to believe that they will be somewhere forever. However, there is no reality that is more empirically valid that we are conscious and we have a free will which is independent of this material world. There is no greater reasonable assumption that we can make than that the immaterial reality is there which we know to be the soul. And there is no reason to believe valid reason to believe that that soul will not continue on. There is no greater existential reality 
than that we are free to choose our actions and we are accountable for them. As such, we will have to answer for them one day. The biblical writers only proclaimed that which we already know in our consciences to be true. As I just quoted, after this, the judgment. The Christian owns a doctrinal heritage of belief in the continuance of life beyond the grave. Despite the assertions of some that the biblical writers progressively came to believe that there would be life after death based on a misunderstanding of and a misreading of passages from Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes, all the writers unanimously declared that after this life there is a judgment. For instance, Job, the oldest book in the Bible, asks this question, If a man die, shall he live again? Job 14.14 But then Job went on a few chapters later in Job 19.25-27 to answer his with his statement of faith, where he said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So what was he describing? He was describing a belief that after physical death, which is when the skin worms eat the body, yet he would behold God. He would see him with eyes. The belief in the bodily resurrection was not something that slowly evolved among biblical writers, but something that is woven into the whole revelation from beginning to the end. The belief that Job and the traditions of the Jewish authors that make up the canon of scriptures is that one day after we die, our life will continue. It will continue not in some spiritual, otherworldly existence of mind, but in a bodily way. Job said, with my eyes, in my flesh, will I see God. The world to come in the mind of the biblical writers was going to be as real and as physical as the world that we presently know. In the flesh, after the skin worms destroy this body, we shall see God. All of the senses that connect us to this world will be experienced in the world that is yet to be. We will have eyes to see, ears to hear, a body to experience all the realities of touch, tongues to taste, noses to smell. There will be extension in actual space. There will be a continuance in some actual form of time. There will be a substance that makes up our reality. Paul did state that it would be a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, generated and perpetuated by the Spirit, but it will yet be a body 
Yes, there is something after this. The writer of Hebrews said, again, Hebrews 9.27, after this, the judgment. Daniel, another Old Testament writer, among other biblical writers, he posited two possible futures of, for people after death. He says in Daniel 12.2, Some will awake to everlasting life. Some, he said, will close their eyes in this life only to rise unto life that is perpetual, that is never-ending, to a life of felicity, a life invigorating, a life enlivening. It is a life, or it is called life, rather, because it is connected to the full fellowship with God who is the source of life. This blessed state is a fitting subject for another day, but one that makes up the sum and substance of our Christian hope. We hope with a hope sure and steadfast based on our faith in Christ who rose from the dead to be a part of that blessed day. So Daniel said, some will awake to everlasting life. And that word awake brings up that idea of resurrection. However, Daniel in that same text in Daniel 12.2 said that there is another end possible. This state was not something that he could call life but rather it's called shame and everlasting contempt. It is not called life because it reflects like non-existence. It's not called life, but it reflects consciousness with words like shame. It's hard to feel shame and not be conscious. And contempt, same idea. Therefore, by the loss of the word life, it does not mean non-living. The psalmist spoke of a fate of being both living and in his or God's wrath. Psalm 58, 9. Whatever fate this is, it is never ending. It is shame and everlasting contempt. So it's a never-ending sense of shame, an endless sense of contempt. There, there is no doubt of awareness here. It is not called life simply because it's the separation from the source of life, a separation from God. John called this place death, or rather the second death, in Revelation 21.8. Those who enter therein are called the dead, dead to God, dead to sin, dead in sins rather, but aware, conscious, and connected in a corporal way to the world in which they will still exist. Existing but not living or thriving, consciously knowing only a sense of shame and the reality of contempt. Yeah, the biblical writers did not believe in any 
into consciousness or corporal existence. The dust of this body shall return to the earth as it was, but the spirit shall return to the God that gave it. And he will judge it. It would be useful at this point, I guess, to define terms. The term hell as it is used in the in this time that we're spending together is only a general term for the great judgment that is to come and is proclaimed to be everlasting in nature. The term hell itself, as it is translated by the biblical writers, simply means the place of the dead. Jesus at one point used the term metaphorically to describe the power of death. <clears throat> and thus of the devil, when he said, the gates of hell should not prevail against the church. However, the term could be broader than that. It could mean the place of peace, where the righteous would go, or a place of torment where the wicked would go. Uh, Psalm sixteen nineteen, for instance, I will not leave my soul in hell, speaking of the, the fate of the Messiah. Sometimes the word was even used in the Old Testament as the grave itself. That does not insinuate that the Old Testament writers did not believe in life after death, or rather beyond death. They uniformly did believe in life beyond death. They further believed that we, shall, we have and shall yet see a judgment after this life. They taught, whether spatially or in terms of differing view of cosmology or in terms of modern physics of interdimensional <laughs> realities that hell was downward ultimately the Jewish nation came to hold the view that hell was a place where the dead would go until judgment the righteous to wait in felicity and happiness and the wicked to wait in torment that's kind of the idea that you get from Luke 16 when Christ spoke of Lazarus and the rich man and their differing fates. Of course, this was before the resurrection of Christ. In that story, hell was the name given to the place of torment that the rich man entered and paradise to the place that Lazarus entered. They were spatially or dimensionally speaking of residing congruent to one another, separated only by a great gulf. They were able to see one another but unable to cross the demarcation. Essentially, they were in the same place. Christ, at his death, told the thief that trusted in him that they would be together in paradise, which answers to Abraham's bosom of Luke 16, which would answer to hell in the prophecy. Uh, so in Psalm 16, verse 10, Speaking of the Messiah not being left in hell, First Peter chapter 3, verse 19, where he preached to the souls in prison, speaking of the place of the dead. It was foretold that Christ would lead captivity captive. And when he died, he went to paradise, him and the thief. And he led captivity captive as he raised from the grave. And therefore, when the apostle Paul gets to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he speaks of his revelation of heaven, he says he was caught up to paradise. 
The way into the holiest of all has been made through Christ, where we now enter into heaven itself. Therefore, by the time we reach the end of the canon, hell was only understood to be the place of the wicked, where they waited for final judgment. And the books will be open in Revelation 20, and they'll be judged, and death and hell will be delivered up, and the dead which are in them, and they shall be cast into the lake of fire. That's the final judgment. This final judgment is the everlasting contempt that was anticipated by Daniel. Often when Christ spoke of hell, he did not use terms like Sheol or Hades, which were often translated hell in the Old and New Testaments. When Christ spoke about hell, often he would use a more descriptive word, Gehenna. When we speak of hell in the time that we have together today, we're going to speak of it in this sense, Gehenna, the place of final judgment. The imagery of hell in this sense is one of fire. The valley of the son of Hinnom, which is where we get the word Gehenna, was a place outside of the gates of Jerusalem that at one point was a hideous place of human sacrifice live human beings and often babies and children were cast alive into the fire of an idol. Even when the practice ended centuries later in the days of Christ when he used the word, it was the place where the trash was burned. The people of that day could see the continuous fire. They could see it. They could hear the sounds of it. It was this use of the word that Christ used to describe the reality of final judgment. It is in this sense that we speak of hell. I guess before we can defend the idea of hell as it is presented in the scriptures, I, we need to understand what exactly is taught in the scriptures. And I think we've already done that somewhat speaking of Daniel. But we should turn first to Christ. Most of what we know about hell we learned from Jesus Christ himself. He taught more about hell than he did about heaven. Uh, consider first that Christ taught the obvious truth and one that is denied by many today that people should fear God because of hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he said, Fear not those that can kill the body, but afterwards can do nothing else. But fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The doctrine of hell was meant by Jesus to be a doctrine of fear. It is a place for both body and soul. So it insinuates a resurrection. If this text stood alone, we might even come up with the idea of annihilation. It would seem to be a proof text. He used the word destroy. Now this destruction is internal in nature. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul talked about eternal destruction. Um, 
It's called destruction because it's complete. It's final in its execution. But it's eternal because it's suspended in the process. The body and soul will be brought to its end in the sense that it will be brought to its inevitable conclusion where it will remain without any further process. Like wood is reduced to ash in its destruction, so will the body and soul of those that are brought into that place of destruction be reduced to its lowest possible state. The wood still exists. It has its being, but it's ash now. It's irreducible. That's what's meant by the word destruction. Men ought to fear this. What happens in that reality to come is complete and final and reduced to its lowest possible state. A state that cannot hope to be reformed. It's destroyed. A ruined city, rubble, no longer able to provide comfort or protection. Christ elsewhere continued to give definition to this irreducible state of the damned. Christ in three successive texts described hell as the place where their worm dies not, where the fire is not quenched in Mark chapter 9. Christ drew from Isaiah 66 verse 24 to use that language. In that context, he repeatedly declared that there is in that place or in that state weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ also in that text beseeched all to avoid it at all costs. If it means losing a hand, losing a leg, losing an eye, it's worth it to avoid that end. The view of Christ regarding Hell is summed up in that text alone in Mark 9. There are distinct clues in the ninth chapter of Mark to the nature of hell, the final home. There's the consciousness of the state. There's the endlessness of the state. There's the torment of the state of hell. And there is puzzling language there that is used of Christ which is connected to that irreducible state. He reduces the existence of the dam to a term, the term, worm. The possessive personal pronoun their, their worm, speaks of the essential person. The essential person will still be there. It will still have possession of faculties. The term worm is what those faculties will be reduced to. The lowest common denominator, what makes them human, what makes them personal. The personal pronoun speaks of the sustained humanity, their. Worm speaks of the reduced state. Whether the term worm is meant to speak of a reduced state of the body or a reduced state of the soul is a matter of debate. The worm in the scriptures first speaks of a state of decay. Uh, Exodus 16.20, for instance. It may speak of the eternal decay of the body, a state connected with bodily suffering. 
of a figure like Job, where he spoke of the skin worms. In this sense, the phrase, their worm dieth not, speaks of the constant, endless corruption of the body, suspended in that state of decay forever. Jesus did not shy away from connecting the suffering of hell from the senses. When he spoke of the rich man in hell, he described someone who could see with eyes and could feel torment with the tongue, had a head he could lift, but just no bodily comfort existed. Hell, like heaven, will not be absent of bodily senses, thus connected with the resurrection. However, there is yet another sense of the word worm. It answers to what Daniel spoke of as of everlasting shame, the humility of the person themselves when describing when describing uh, the Messiah in prophecy in Psalm twenty two verse six, the Messiah would cry, I am a worm and no man there in the humbled position of the cross. The first will for forever be made to last. Whereas the saved humble themselves before God, that God may lift them up. These will ever be, be humbled in the sense that they will forever be suspended in a humbled state, never to be lifted up. I fancy really that both of these ideas, a humbled state of the body and a humbled state of the soul, gets more to the idea of what's being described as hell. But there's not just the consciousness of the state that's spoken of here, the endlessness of the state. Their worm dies not, the fire is not quenched. Christ presents these descriptions not in any allegorical sense, but in a blanket statement of fact. Consider there in the text, Mark 9, 43-48, within six verses, Christ repeats six distinct times that the fire will not be quenched. Added to, the, to that, the statement that their worm shall not die contains the implication of an endless nature. So Christ, in six verses, declares nine times that hell will not end. Kind of like the bush that burned in the days of uh, Moses, the burning bush. It burned, but it was not consumed. That's what the wrath of God would be in this picture. God shall not extinguish his fire. It didn't say he could not. It says he shall not. Christ believed that this state of hell would never be brought to an end. And thus he called it damnation in Matthew 23, 22, and eternal damnation in Mark 3, 29. There is something of the eternal nature of God that sustains hell. He is a consuming fire, and it's a fearful thing to fall into those hands. When we die, we return to God. Those who are saved return to a state of His grace and eternal felicity. Those that That are lost return to God in a sense of his wrath, being separated from love and grace and mercy forever. 
Hell is hidden in the eternal nature of God. It is fire indeed. So fire always ends up becoming this this picture that is constantly used to describe it. it. It's something you and I can relate to. It burns and sears in great intensity and torment. It is eternal, and as long as God exists, it'll exist. Contrary to the rumbling of men like Rob Bell, hell cannot end because it is eternal and therefore connected to the very existence of God. It's also everlasting. That speaks in terms of our temporality. Christ described it as everlasting fire and everlasting destruction. Matthew 18, 8. 1929, 45, 41, 46. To be everlasting is to be never ending. You cannot add one to one and one to one and keep going and counting in those intervals and never come to an end. You cannot traverse the infinite. It will never reach a vanishing point. And that's a terrible fate. Is not quenched. However, that does not in and of itself complete the teaching of Christ in regards to hell. Christ echoes that which we have already seen in Daniel, the true torments of hell. No less than five different times, Christ described the experience with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, a correlation to Daniel in his shame and everlasting contempt. The the description of Christ, however, speaks of both mental and physical anguish, whereas Daniel only spoke of the former. Weeping speaks of an emptiness of joy, the opposite of heaven, where it is called the joy of our Lord. Hell will be a place of sorrow, a continuing present sorrow, as the tense of the verb weeping intends. Those who laugh now, Christ said, will weep later and will weep forever. There is a damnable lie that hell is a place for rebels of this life to revel in the rebellion for all eternity like some kind of great party. Foolish pictures of poetry have given rise to this. Milton's devil saying, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven kind of gave them this idea. So generations of people have rebelled against God in their lives, believing that hell would be a heaven for them, where they would have an endless fellowship and reveling, but there's no fellowship. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth is an expression of pain in the body. There will be a resurrection to damnation, a literal bodily resurrection. The rich man in hell was described again as having his senses. Gnashing speaks of that intense grinding one would have when they're bearing great pain or great rage. It is the physical expression of great turmoil. If we take it to speak of the bearing of great pain... The expression of weeping corresponds to this unbearable pain too. The psalmist used terms like the wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. 
speaking of the loss, the perishing of the hope of the wicked. But it also, gnashing of teeth also speaks of hatred. Thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. Lamentations 2.16 Therefore, hell is a place reduced to the greatest discord, unlike the harmony of heaven. As the Pharisees gnashed on Stephen with their teeth in hatred, so will those in hell gnash on one another with their teeth. It will be filled with intense and endless hatred and rage with all who share that state. It's not a party with your friends. There will be no fellowship, only intense hatred and intense pain. A lonely self-centeredness of hell an absence of love and an absence of empathy the physical suffering of hell brings up the most vivid we already kind of discussed this idea of fire and Christ constantly spoke of it as fire and there's no picture more hideous than this idea of fire the thought of burning even a portion of oneself is is the thought of intense pain, but to be engulfed in it is unthinkable. When someone's on fire, what do they do? They seek death, they cry, they convulse, they scream. To be suspended in that moment is definitely the reality that Christ wanted to convey to the sinner when he said to fear this. Follow the direct, following the direct teaching of John the Baptist of Mark chapter 4 and 10 and 12. Christ 15 times referenced hell as fire. Some would wish to lessen the intensity of such a declaration by saying that fire is simply a metaphor for the wrath of God. If it's intended to be a metaphor, that would give no reason for us to believe that the suffering of hell is something less intense and less real. One does not escape suffering by declaring metaphorical language. The denial of hell as the physical reality is simply the denial that there will be a physical body for the damned. As has already been highlighted, there will be a resurrection that is congruent with the resurrection of the saints. There will be this reality of the rich man and Lazarus. I am tormented in this flame. Christ elsewhere, outside of the declarations in Mark, spoke of hell as darkness. Three times in the book of, book of Matthew, Christ is recorded as referring to hell as a place of suffering and separation from God as outer darkness one such utterance goes like this in Matthew twenty-two thirteen. then said the king to his servants bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth darkness in the scripture is often meant to delineate the light of God and that which is absent his glory God is light in the sense that he reveals himself. However, there in hell, those who know not God will learn nothing new there. That's the end of Revelation, which could have been a source of comfort. 
It is darkness according to Christ because men loved that instead of light because their deeds are evil in John 3.19. The plague of darkness upon the Egyptians was said to be a darkness which could be felt. Exodus 10.2 And was mirrored by the plague of darkness in the last days where men will gnaw their tongues for pain in Revelation 16.10. Christ referred to it as outer darkness, not, no doubt, rather, because of its separation from God. There is also this definite physical and mental suffering connected to it. We naturally fear the dark. To be left in darkness for a long period of time would cause panic in the strongest of people. Peter himself would later agree that it's a place of darkness, everlasting, a mist of darkness forever in 2 Peter 2.7. Yet, two words of Christ still kind of stick out when he talks about hell. He uses the word condemnation and the word damnation. Jesus told us that those who do not believe in him are condemned already and told us that the meat of this condemnation is, is that they rejected light and loved darkness, John three eighteen and 19. Salvation is from condemnation, John chapter 5, verse 24. Hell then is that condemnation, that righteous judgment upon the guilty. The entire world will become guilty before God. The books will be opened and people will be rightly condemned for their works. There will not be a single person in hell that will not know themselves to be guilty and deserving of that end. Therefore, as Daniel said, they go into everlasting shame. Then the word damnation... For some, there is a greater damnation. Those especially that had light and refused it. But there are, some will be lesser, but there is still the damnation of hell. How shall you escape the damnation of hell? Jesus said in Matthew 23. The fate of the lost was summed up by Christ by saying, They that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation John 5:29 Christ like Daniel connected the eternally lost with the bodily resurrection This is fully congruent with the doctrine of the resurrection taught in the whole scripture to be damned is kin to the term, term condemnation It is the final irrevocable decision to punish the wrongdoer it's a final no place of repentance there. It's those words of Matthew 7.23 being pronounced completely and finally. Depart from me. And the teachings of Christ were cemented by the apostles who followed him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for instance, gave us the exact teachings of Jesus when they wrote their book. Uh, Peter and Luke mirrored the doctrine of Paul in the early apostolic 
uh, missionaries. Matthew was indicative of the thought of all the original apostles as well as John who wrote the last of the gospels and taught us the enduring doctrine of the apostles themselves. They mostly teach us what Christ believed about hell which should be decisive for any Christian. They showed us what John the Baptist taught as well, not just Jesus Christ, which mirrored the teachings of Jesus Christ. But setting aside the four Gospels, the rest of the New Testament marches in perfect harmony. Paul called hell indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish in Romans 2, 7-9. Paul went on to teach that they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, called it fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries in Hebrews 10.27. Peter called it the fire and perdition reserved for the ungodly in 2 Peter 3.7. Jude called it the vengeance of eternal fire and the reserved blackness of darkness forever. And John in Revelation taught it to be the lake of fire. There is no doubt that the New Testament writers agreed and perpetuated the view of hell that was taught by Christ when he was on earth. John said in Revelation 14.11, The smoke of their torment arises forever and ever. This brings up the last doctrinal hurdle, I guess. Does the teaching of, the, of hell in the Old Testament support the New Testament? We already know that the teaching of Daniel was in congruence with the New Testament. And, but Daniel was rather old or late in the New Testament or Old Testament history. And there, was, there had been given, there were people that had this idea that the doctrine of hell evolved into its present form uh, and was not initially taught by the canonical writers. This does not in and of itself dismiss the truth of hell. There are many things that are more fully revealed in the New Testament by Christ and confirmed by the authority of his teaching and confirmed by his resurrection. If Christ raised from the grave, we should believe every word he had to say about hell, even if it, even if it was... Uh, not clearly taught in the Old Testament, because what they, what him, what Christ and his apostles taught was authoritative, and absence any support from the Old Testament, uh, it's still authoritative. But is there a clear contradiction between the two, between the teaching of the Old Testament and Christ? Obviously, there is no clear reason for Moses and the writers of the books of history to deal with the afterlife. Their concern was to teach history and to teach law. Moses and the history writers definitely did show a belief in the resurrection, though. They demonstrated by following, by the following points. Their burial of the dead the present tense lordship of God to those who have passed, like where God says, I am the God of Abraham, 
to Moses from the burning bush. The description of death as being a departure, giving up the ghost, yielding up the spirit, things of that nature. The departure of Enoch and Elijah. Uh, and many other instances. Job, as we looked at from the oldest book in the Bible, taught about the afterlife. David and Solomon also both taught the afterlife and the resurrection. Ecclesiastes 12, Psalm 16. Isaiah followed suit. The Old Testament writers did not blush to use terms like forever when discussing their hope in God. There, there is no indication anywhere that the state of the wicked will not also be forever. We know that the wicked shall be turned into hell in Psalm 19, verse 17. We know that the spirits of all men at death return to God in Ecclesiastes 12, 7. There are a handful of scriptures that state that the death of the wicked will bring an end to their plans and their expectations, which is true. It compares their death poetically to the death of beasts and says they know nothing in Ecclesiastes 9. However, those texts did not deny the afterlife, but spoke to an end of the experiential knowledge in this life. David summed it up well when he spoke of our dissolving earthen vessels and the state of the loss when that happens of being still living and in the wrath of God in Psalm 58, 9. So there is no contradiction between the early Old Testament writers and that which was clearly taught by Daniel and by Christ and the apostles. So we should now consider the arguments against the existence of hell. There can be zero doubt that the eternal or rather everlasting state of intense suffering will be the fate of those that are not reconciled to God from their sin, according to the scriptures. That's clearly what the, teacher, the, the scriptures teach. There are and can be no valid scriptural arguments to the contrary. All objections to the idea of hell represent a desire for people to rebel against the clear teachings of scriptures. They do so by rejecting the authority of God and holding instead to their own reasoning as equal or of greater authority than God's word. Human reasoning outside of revelation of God is flawed. And we have seen that in previous discussions on the subject. How prideful it is, how prideful rather is it for us to say when it comes to the question of eternity for which we have no direct access we can find our own way by the power of our own reasoning without the revelation of God so there can be no arguments against the idea of hell if any argument if an argument rather against the idea of hell can be successful, it has to abandon the scriptures and try to stand on human reasoning alone. Setting that aside, there seems to be three categories for, of arguments for those that deny the existence of hell. They can deny it by denying the existence of God. They can deny it by denying the justice of God. 
Or they can deny it by denying the mercy of God or the love of God. Those are the three veins. And just quickly, I want to go through these. The first objection is to deny hell by saying that God doesn't exist. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because if truth exists, if goodness exists, if beauty exists, then God exists. If there is intelligence, if there is sensibility, if there is volition that exists, then God exists. Uh, you have to take this great leap of faith to believe in anything once you've gotten rid of God. You have to believe that non-life produce life and chaos produce order and intelligence arose from non-intelligence and the personal arose from the non-personal. All these are great leaps of faith that defy reason. So the idea that hell doesn't exist because God doesn't exist doesn't fly. But really it's just the first refuge that people will take from the idea of judgment is to simply deny that there is no judge. They will make it more sophisticated. They'll bring up the problem of evil and suffering, and since hell is the ultimate form of suffering, that seems to be the ultimate argument that they have. It's argued that if hell exists, then God is either not just or not loving. It's surmised that since Christians believe that hell does exist and they believe that God is loving and just, that therefore the Christian God must not exist. And they feel like they've done away cleverly with the idea of God and hell and they can go about and live their sinful lives. But they also offer a false set of choices. The only thing we need to do is to defeat this argument is to show that hell does not deny the justice or the love of God, which I hope we can do in the next few minutes. For those who are willing to concede the existence of God, the argument will always come to this, the justice of God. Can God be just and send people to hell? Hell in and of itself is the ultimate form, symbol rather, of justice. Philosophers like Immanuel Kant saw this. Uh, the idea that God is not just if he sends people to hell borders on insanity. If there is no merited judgment after this life, then morality does not exist. And this life is an absurd joke, and it doesn't matter what we what we do. Like, like Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, if there is no ultimate final judgment, then everything's permissible. There is no reason to not be a Hitler, not to be a Dahmer, not to be a Jack the Ripper. The denying of God's justice is basically an argument that maintains that man should be free from all judgment and able to do whatever they want to do, whether it's good or bad. The scriptures declare differently. When they declare that there is a moral imperative, flee from the wrath to come. God is just to judge men and to execute punishment based on the deeds that they do. For some, he gives greater damnation. For others, they have something more tolerable, which are, argues some level of mercy even in hell, that some will 
some level of awareness by the worst that they do have it worse. You find that in Matthew 10, 14 and 10, 15. Based to, or rather to claim that there is no hell because that would not be just as to claim that sin does not exist. Sin most obviously does exist, so there has to be a judgment. Morality exists, so there is a judgment. Nevertheless, the question remains as we look into the judge justice of God. God may be just to send people to hell, but is God just to keep people there forever? This is the logic behind the doctrine of annihilation. And we don't like it. I mean, we're going to talk about our empathy here in a second, but someone in hell forever. First, let's, let's, we're just considering the justice of God. This is human pride. To set limits on how much God cannot can or cannot judge man's sin. It's akin to the logic that says that God should not be able to judge us at all for our sin. The most favorite verse of scripture of ever of everyone in our present age is judge not. And they want to not only say that to you, but they want to say that to God and say God cannot judge. Can you imagine a murderer standing before a judge and saying, you can judge me by throwing me in jail for one week, but that's it. No, we cannot limit the judge of all and how much he can judge. It is just a less, lesser degree of the same faulty logic that says he cannot judge sin of, at all. If one is absurd, the other is equally absurd. How can man dictate to God the limitations of justice? However, there's more to the matter. God is just to punish sin. And that without, without limits set by us because of the nature of the crime. We've heard, let the punishment fit the crime. Um, the judge of all the earth shall do right, said Abraham. People balk at the idea of retributive justice, an eye for an eye. But there is no greater moral philosophy of justice and fairness. God taking vengeance against sin is the greatest expression of justice. There is an infinite and eternal weight to each free moral choice that people make in the limits of time and space. If I steal from a fellow human being, I could repay it, an eye for an eye. Add a little interest, justice is done. But my wrong, my wrong incurred a finite date, debt that I could pay. However, sin is a crime against God, and he is eternal. It carries an infinite debt. Sin affronts every eternal attribute of God. So the door to eternal justice is open when David says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this thing. Psalm 51.4 The escape that some attempt from this logic is to embrace some form of fatalism. If God does exist, hell is possible and without limit. 
If man freely chooses to transgress against God, then man may have an infinite guiltiness that demands justice. An eye for an eye is proportional based on a worth of the offender or the one offended. If I still if I steal a trillion dollars, then justice demands that I repay it. If I offended eternal glory, justice demands that I pay that. I am wholly responsible for my deeds. However, it is argued, what if man is not responsible for what he does? Then God is unjust if he sends him to hell. Such a foolish argument was dealt with by Paul in Romans chapter 9, where the free moral agency of humanity is one of the great apologetics uh, for existence. Paul answered, he says, God is, when someone says, God has made me thus, he said, okay, well, the thing form cannot say against the thing that formed, what doest thou? Even in the realm of fatalism, God is still not robbed of his glory. But let's consider the argument anyway. The argument for the unresponsibility of man takes two forms, the limited form and the unlimited form. There, the limited form is that some have never heard the gospel, and therefore to send them to hell would be unjust. They can't be responsible for rejecting God for whom they never heard. The unlimited form is to say that liberty doesn't exist at all. Let's take this form, or first one, the limited form. Some have never heard the gospel. Should they be sent to hell? The, this is a faulty idea on what makes mankind guilty. People are not sent to hell because of their inability to hear the gospel, though the gospel alone can save. People are sent to hell because they are of the guilt of their sin. The knowledge of God, his existence, and his wrath or judgment is universal. As long as people are innocent, they are not guilty. If they do not know what is right and wrong, they cannot be considered guilty. However, human experience is knowing that we're wrong. That's what the conscience is. The moment we became aware of God and aware of his commandments, we become aware of his judgment. Paul argued in Romans 1 that they knew God this is the experience of all humanity. They knew God, and they glorified him not as God, and they went on to commit abominable acts. Any honest person will admit that they know what is right and wrong and have chosen to do wrong anyway, regardless of whether they have heard the gospel or not. All, all people know that they are guilty. The Christian can maintain the idea based on the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius in Acts 8 and Acts 10, that those who have not heard may still be brought to the gospel by grace. And we long as Christians to have part in that glorious work of sharing the gospel. But God is not unjust to judge sinners who by their own will have sinned against him. There are no innocent people. 
one could argue that this is honoring to man as well, that placing divine honor on the consequences of their choices. The second form of fatalism is that choices don't exist at all. And we discussed this before with materialism. There are no choices that are made with materialism. But really, to say that we could say, these people may say that people are just products of their biology or they're products of their environment. To say the products of their biology, a lot of people say, well, I'm born this way. Well, that this does more than just deny the existence of God and the soul, but it also the existence of consciousness and morality as well. It's absurd. We know empirically that we make choices. We may develop a physical predisposition to things such as addictions, but we make choices. And those choices are real. And those choices are either right or wrong. The atheist biologist who chooses to write books to convince people that choices don't exist is absurd. There are, we're not completely determined. We all have choices. The sociologist would turn and say that we're products of our environment and determined by social forces. That never does away with choice, though. A person may be born in a Muslim culture, which may naturally become a Muslim, though the testament that not everyone born in a Muslim country becomes Muslim is a testament to will, or at least, or rather, God's grace. But they're still responsible. The Nazi soldier, even though all the cultural influences told him to do Nazi things, was still responsible. How could we say that they must be cast in... So someone born... The argument that someone born in a Muslim country become, obviously becomes a Muslim and rejects, and rejects Christianity. Um, and they would say, how could someone be cast in hell because they were Muslims and not Christians? This goes back... To one does not go to hell because they're a Muslim. They go to hell because they're a sinner who has not been reconciled to God and forgiven of their sin through Christ. They go to hell because they're sinners by choice. If they do not seek the one true God but rather trust in their own works-based religion, they will never come to know salvation. They're still responsible for their sin. That brings us to the last argument. Hell cannot be denied by denying the existence of God. Hell cannot be denied by denying the existence of God's justice. The only recourse left is to say that hell denies the love and mercy and goodness of God. Would a good God send people to hell? Would a loving and merciful God keep people in hell? This objection tugs at our heartstrings. If hell is real, then it is a place of conscious and never-ending suffering. How does that show us the love, mercy, and goodness of God? We should note that this, is, this objection is emotional. It's not rational. 
Discussing God's justice is rational. Discussing God's love is emotional. The discussion of justice demands hell and allows for it without limit. Justice posits the infinite guilt of sin and a God that must judge transgression. If guilt is real, then so is judgment. We have sympathy, though, for those who we know are suffering, and that's a good thing. As such, the thought of someone suffering continually stirs us to wish for relief for them, even the worst of people. Hence, we become soul winners when we share Christ with people. On that basis, the related question, how can we enjoy heaven? If you talk to people about hell much, you'll have this objection. How can anyone enjoy heaven when they know that their loved one is in hell? The answer to that question, again, has nothing to do with the justice of hell. We could answer that question in a different ways. We, we are still left with suffering being allowed to continue. Will our tears be wiped away? Yes. Will the former things be remembered no more? Yes. Will we have a perfect understanding of the fate of the lost? Yes. But they still suffer. The fact that they are reduced to something less than what we knew, like a work of art that's burned to ashes, we may weep for them for a, weep for it for a time, but but we can accept the fact that it is gone eventually. Yes, we do continually, but they're still suffering. Why does God, in His mercy, not bring it to an end? There's no logic, no matter how sound, that can satisfy our empathy. God is honoring their will, yes. God is not allowing the preciousness of their conscience to extinguish, yes. God is executing his perfect righteousness and justice as an eternal memorial, yes. God is not forced to show mercy on whom he will not. He is free to show on mercy on whom he will, yes. They never sought God as sinners in need of mercy. After all, they went by hell despising the mercy of God as it was shown them by walking by the cross, as some people say. Yes, will hell stand as an eternal memorial to the hideousness of sin and make us gratefully cry that Christ saved us and washed us from our sins? Yes, we will rejoice in the righteousness and holiness of God. Yes, but our empathy remains. Despite the soundness of that theology, our empathy remains. We must then answer this emotional question. The emotional question is not about the existence of hell or the justice of it, but about the apparent callousness of it. God can still be good, loving, and merciful, and hell still exists everlastingly. Hell does not exclude those truths. We note that hell was not for man, but entered because, because of sin. But it was for the devil and his angels, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Hell was enlarged because of the guiltiness of man. The original creation, which includes man, was an expression of the goodness of God. God declared all of creation before sin to be very good. Sin caused hell to be created. 
not God. We are to blame for hell, not God. Hell, like sin, is a deprivation or a departure from the goodness of God. It results from man despising the goodness of God. Sin rejected the love of God, and that is why there is a hell. They must despise the goodness of God that leads them to repentance. In this sense, hell is not about the love of God at all. Hell is about the hatred of man for God and for his goodness. It is the final expression of man not willing to be reconciled to God, who has done all to reconcile himself to them. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 So our emotions on this matter are wrong-headed. It mistakenly questions God instead of questioning man. Why does hell exist? It exists because of the sin and hatred man chooses, not God. In addition, the goodness and love of God are not separated from his righteousness. His judgment and wrath against the sin is an expression of his love and goodness. God so loved those that are saved that he would not allow sin, uncleanness, and hatred to enter into his rest. Hell is an eternal memorial of that hideous thing that God saved us from. However, I believe there is a greater answer to the emotional question of hell. The assumption of the scoffer is that hell is that God rather is aloof or malevolent to the suffering of hell. They picture God as separated from what they already consider to be unjust suffering, like a Caesar at the circus games watching people get killed, or a Nazi soldier resting in comfort while a starving Jew is beaten outside. Nothing could be further from the truth. Consider the eternally present nature of God, David said in Psalm 139. If I make my bed in hell, God is there. God is never separated from those whom he judges. While he is eternally angry with the wicked, and while he must eternally hate and despise them, it does not preclude the fact that according to Ezekiel 33.11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If God is eternally present in the exercise of his wrath, then God is also, in a sense, eternally displeased with their fate. With this fact, we enter into a truth that's hard to understand. There will apparently be a grief that God must bear in the exercise of his judgment. This is not malevolence at all. While our heart breaks for the loss, how much more should our heart break for God and yearn for God that must in righteousness judge? God's not aloof from suffering. This naturally leads us to the expression of the suffering of God upon the cross of Christ. The, soft, the father suffered in forsaking his son. The son suffered in being forsaken of the father. Why? To save people from hell. 
from sin, from the wages of sin, the consequence of sin. There is no man that ends up in hell that can say that they came to God in Christ and could not find salvation. We cannot consider hell without speaking of the cross. God is acquainted with the suffering of hell by experience. Is hell sorrow? Christ in Isaiah 53 is the man of sorrow. Is hell the worm where the worm dies not? Christ was made to cry in Psalm 22, 6, I am a worm and no man when he suffered on the cross. Is hell darkness? The sun hid its face from the cross as Christ hung there. Did the rich man thirst when he was tormented in hell? Christ cried from the sufferings of the cross in John 19:28. I thirst. Is hell separation from God? Christ was forsaken of the Father on the cross and cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ, as the infinite God made flesh, experienced all the horrors of hell eternally while he hung there and bled and died, separated from his Father. Why did he do it? He died for our sins, the sins that those in hell refused to turn from. He suffered for them. That is what they despised, to end up in hell. They did not have to end up in hell, but instead could have allowed God to experience all hell in their place. In the light of this truth, our mouths are stopped. And there are no more logic or emotional arguments against the existence of hell. Our hearts are just made to break when we think that despite the love and goodness of God, men still choose to go to hell. you enjoyed this time that we got to spend together in God's word again and as we consider this uncomfortable subject of judgment and hell we are made to see in a greater light the glory of our God and the greatness of his love and the greatness of his justice and the greatness of his grace until next time Lord bless